Hello. Hi. 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 Hello. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious I'm about. Curious about. I'm curious about building open, authentic, loving relationship. I'm curious about jealousy. I'm curious about polyamory. Does it just mean that you're fucking all the time? How can I tell my parents that my partner is already married? I'm curious about... How do you know when you're too busy to have another relationship? I'm curious about dominant and subordinate relationships. I'm curious about sexual health. How can relationships can evolve with people evolve as they grow and change? The, the, the missed opportunity felt to be connected to really unfolding this idea of, first of all, in a way, examining the worldview around menstruation. Like, Mm -hmm. does it have to be such a sort of, you know, just a thing to be managed and concealed and, you know, dealt with and sort of as quickly and as neatly and unmessily as possible? Like, what is the worldview this whole thing's embedded in? Welcome to the Curious Fox podcast. For those challenging the status quo in love, sex and relationships. My name is Effie Blue. This week, we're talking about menstruation. But wait, wait, before you switch off, because you either think you can't learn anything new about periods, yawn, boring topic, or if you simply don't have them, stick around. You'll be surprised. I was surprised. Jacqueline and I have done over 150 episodes of this show at this point. And we have covered topics ranging from kink to social justice, from radical family law to tantra, and never have I been so surprised by a conversation. Speaking of my dearest friend and co-host Jackie, you won't hear from her in this episode, but don't worry, she'll be back. Since the beginning of 2023, I have been traveling around India and Bali, unfortunately without Jackie. I wish she was here with me. Alas, I roam solo. Throughout my travels, I have been given the privilege to talk to some incredible people with incredible insights and inspirational projects. And this is one of those episodes. And there'll be more. One more thing before we dive in. While we acknowledge and honor that not everyone who menstruates identifies as a woman and not everyone who identifies as a woman menstruates, we do use gendered language in this episode. And why we do that becomes apparent along the way. Please trust us that we see you all and support you in your entire being. Okay, let's go back to talking about periods. More precisely, how a small social enterprise in South India is focusing on menstruation to cause radical social change in women's welfare. Joining me today is... So my name is Kathy Walkling. I'm from Australia and I've been living in this amazing community of Oroville for um, 25 years and I'm the co-founder of Ecofem, which is a social enterprise working on the topic of menstruation from multiple perspectives. Ecofem is a woman-led social enterprise founded by Kathy and her co-founder Yasmin Medina in 2010. Based in Tamil Nadu, India, that's the very, very southern tip of India, ECOFEM's goal is to create environmental and social change through revitalizing menstrual practices that are healthy, environmentally sustainable, culturally responsive, and empowering. What they do is to produce and sell washable cloth pads, provide menstrual health education, and open dialogues on menstruation along the way. What they are is a global 
Empowerment Initiative and one of the most gently radical ones I have ever come across. Before founding Ecofem, Kathy was working at an NGO focused on supporting rural women in the region. They were exploring topics to do with gender and caste, which are huge in India. Knowing economic empowerment is one of the real leverages to pull women out of the oppressive conditions they face, they were trying to develop income-generating activities they could offer. These women were largely uneducated, didn't have a lot of skills, but they were willing to do something, to work. Kathy came up with an idea, inspired by a problem she has been trying to solve in a different area of her life. When she moved to India from Australia in the 90s, one of the first things she was confronted with was dealing with her own sanitary waste. Unlike the West, where there are containers conveniently placed in bathrooms where you discard your waste and never really think about it again, Kathy was given a shovel and told to go into the jungle to dig a hole to bury her sanitary waste. I was like disturbed by that and that gave me this sort of, it got me questioning what mm. I was using, the products I was using to use and throw tampons at that time. And I happened to discover a cloth pad, just really homemade, unbranded, really just like unpackaged, even just sitting in a basket in a corner store in an old, like a village store in New Zealand. Mm. And I just instinctively bought that product thinking, let me try it. So it was really for me just to try to find a way out of this mess (laughs) to do with the um, digging holes every month situation Mm. that I didn't enjoy doing. And when I started to use the cloth pad, it was a kind of epiphany. I I found that I really enjoyed the experience of using it. Mm -hmm. It made me question my conditioning around the way I'd sort of had this resistance and in a way bias against menstruation. Mm -hmm. So, of course, you have to handle your menstrual blood. It's You wash it, you reuse it. Mm -hmm. And in the process of doing that, I was really intrigued to notice that it it got me thinking about how I'd been conditioned around menstruation in a way I, f- I could feel that it was a real positive shift, that it, it brought me into a more intimate connection with my menstrual blood that I'd been previously somewhat distant from using these use and throw products. Mm. So I just developed a sort of love affair with cloth pads, really, <laughs> and just for my own, I, I found I really enjoyed to use them. And it was surprised me how subversive I found this little product to be. So that's what got me into cloth pads. Mm. And I honestly just thought to make them initially for the women here in Oroville and did that for about 10 years. So, mm. so bringing it into the NGO as an income-generating activity really came after seeing over those 10 years that actually it wasn't just me that liked the product. People were buying them. I even had different women approach me who'd been visiting Oroville and bought mm. the cloth pad. And it's like, oh, can I sell that in Spain? Can I sell it in England? So I always say I became an accidental entrepreneur. Mm. <laughs> I didn't sort of set out to do that at all. Mm. But I was very much sort of surprised to see this uptake of this kind of product. Mm. So that's really, I think, the combination of my own journey with cloth pads Mm. and feeling like it was such a powerful little product that had all these benefits. Mm. I mean, cost saving was another, yeah. Mm. And seeing the, the need for women to find an income generating activity and they're all busy learning how to stitch. So it was like putting, joining the dots and putting the two together and we thought we'd try it out. Soon after starting this enterprise, the NGO Kathy was involved in started to do research to try to understand what kind of education about menstruation was available to girls and women in India. 
we used our opportunity through this NGO to kind of get out there and do surveys and interviews and focus groups with a lot of women and girls from the rural communities. And so we learned that the basic, a few basic things, like, for example, that there were a lot of kind of cultural expectations around and observances around menstruation. So, you know, we commonly hear about not touching the pickle, but, you know, not going to temple, not going in the kitchen, not touching plants. I mean, it varies in different geographies across the country, but there's a really long list of things that women and girls especially when they attain menarche were told this is now you've come of age you're not supposed to do this this and this so this was the education they were being given it's about the sort of do's and don'ts mm-hmm. uh, mostly don'ts <laughs> <laughs> and you know and as we tried to understand what was behind that essentially it appeared to be rooted in this idea that there is you know menstruating woman is impure that there's so this idea of pollution connected to menstrual blood so this was the understanding mm. that they had about the, this for themselves and how it was conveyed to us that you know we shouldn't do these things because bad things will happen mm. And when we try to go deeper and understand, like, what kind of bad thing, why would this be a problem, what do you think is the source of that, they really didn't have an answer to those kind of mm. questions. It was just no bad things will happen. We don't really know why this is what we have to do. This is what I was taught. This is what I pass on to my daughters. So the education was almost entirely confined to this kind of domain of cultural practices. Mm. And when it came to getting education around, the, the, for example, the process of what's happening in, in the body, how does this connect with something like fertility, mm. this was pretty much absent. So that was a big learning curve for us and in a way a bit of a sort of shock to realise just how neglected it was in education mm. And for girls too, I mean, it was very interesting, especially in Tamil Nadu where we're located, and this is, again, quite common in different parts of India, but girls we celebrated at the time of their first menstruation. They have this big event which the family holds, everybody is invited in the community, mm-hmm. and they really sort of celebrated as a goddess. She gets dressed up and she gets jewels and special food, and then isolated, you know, told to sit in a special place. And so, again, talking to different girls about mm-hmm. this experience it turns out it's been quite confusing for many mm. of them because on the one hand it's like a mixed message that there's something very special about you now but they're not allowed to play anymore they're not allowed to kind mm. of you know and then there's suddenly there's this kind of different atmosphere after this event in the home which is a kind of extra protection that they don't have exposure then to boys and you know not to go out alone and things like that mm. so in a way they understand that the message is that she's now fertile she's now potentially eligible for marriage we celebrate it but we're also afraid of what can happen to the girl then mm. so this is the kind of milieu in which this experience is is unfolding here mm. So, yeah, that led us to really kind of think about education and what are the gaps um, to try to understand what was happening. Was it part of mainstream curriculum? If not, (laughs) you know, where do you start? And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, then we started to get really interested in. I think because we sort of realised that this thing also of fear and shame, I mean, many girls, for example, reported that when they first got their period, they didn't even know that it was going to happen. Like mm. in many cases, they're not even warned <laughs> that mm. this is happening. So, you know, their first impression is, is am I dying? Is there something wrong? And that seemed to be a really sad and unfortunate state mm. of affairs. Like this is 
absolutely addressable with some basic information like this doesn't have to happen that Mm. girls need to feel so overwhelmed and anxious and frightened by the Mm -hmm. onset of menstruation by the way given the circumstances kathy and her team are doing this work they feel they have to keep the content as simple and accessible as possible which unfortunately means they have to stick to reductive gendered language around this topic as kathy and i were reflecting on how traumatic it must be for these girls I couldn't help but reminisce about my experience starting my period. I grew up in a fairly liberal household with a mom that walked around naked and left the bathroom door open. So I've always known at some point I'll be bleeding. Despite this openness on one side, there really wasn't that much information, education or discussion on the other side. Why it happened, what my options were dealing with it weren't really discussed. It was mostly presented to me as a burden to bear. I was to use disposable pads and wear dark bottoms in case they leaked. Eventually, when my period did start, so did the slog of dealing with it. I hated my period. They were painful and messy. I hated sneaking off to the bathroom with sanitary products up my sleeve in school. It felt so isolating. I hated what my body was doing to me every month. There was nothing positive about this experience. I was curious what kind of education Kathy got and how it affected her relationship with her body. It was just almost non-existent. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was a kind of, you know, I, I remember very clearly, in fact, one thing we often do in our office and sessions and when visitors come is we have exactly this conversation, mm-hmm. like what was your first period like? How were you prepared? And, you know, I realised that you know, I wasn't alone in this, but in my own experience, I remember very clearly, you know, first of all, hiding it the first month, didn't even tell my mother. I was so horrified and mm-hmm. even though I sort of knew what it was, but I, I can't remember ever having it really properly explained what was going going on. And then when I came back and I realized I had to sort of face it and telling my mother and her just like taking me into the bedroom, you know, pulling out a packet of disposable napkins from the lower recesses of her cupboard. And and the basic information was you make sure you wrap it up properly, you put it in the bin and basically don't let your father or your brother have to deal with the mess. And that was sort of it. And I got the message loud and clear. It was secret. It was something kind of to be ashamed of. I felt very kind of uncomfortable and And uh, I I just found it was like horrible, actually. Mm. I didn't want to be dealing with this at all. And I was embarrassed. Mm. And so, yeah, pretty much no education. Mm, (laughs) And, of course, in later years, as I started having conversations with more and more people about it and their experience, I realised this was actually not uncommon. I mean, I think this was probably why the journey with a cloth pad for me was so radical and Mm. so weirdly emancipatory Mm -hmm. because I you know I had this sort of baggage and even though I'd explored so many things in my life around my cultural conditioning and you know around sexuality and shame and Mm -hmm. you know I grew up in in a family where you know I was Catholic sex was really a big taboo so Mm -hmm. I really had done a lot of kind of examining my conditioning but something with menstruation like it remained sort of under the carpet and I you know I didn't realize it until I started using the cloth pad just how much of a sort of dark corner this particular aspect of experience was and so as I kind of you know through my own journey through uncovering my own biases and you know negative beliefs around it it really did bring me into a kind of closer contact to my body and I started to you know just yeah, just feel more curious myself about what was going on and touching my blood and 
Yeah, and then, you know, of course, over the years, different things unfolded, like especially as I got more and more into EcoFem. I think what we started to really get more deeply interested in is, for example, in India, how are women dealing with uh, menstruation? Mm -hmm. What sort of preparation does an adolescent girl have for menarche, for example? Mm -hmm. And then being here in Oroville, we had so many foreign visitors coming through. So I started to meet people, women, particularly who identified themselves as menstrual activists. Mm -hmm. It was a term that I'd never heard until sort of a year or two into ECOFEM, but I was really kind of excited by that idea of being an activist activist and taking the topic of menstruation and bringing it into a public arena and talking about it because they started to see the power of these conversations that suddenly, you know, just by bringing it into the open and opening a conversation in a curious and safe way, very intimate um, aspects of of our lives were starting to come out. And it was surprisingly rich and tender and full of, you know, like a lot of stored feelings for so many women. Mm. And so I found it, yeah, it really, I realised I was, we were really onto something here. This was like a red thread, quite literally. Realising despite our Western privilege, how little education Cathy and I got about menstruation, I started to wonder, how do you even start the conversation with girls and women in rural India, some of whom don't even know anything about it until they start bleeding one day we just put together you know we looked a little bit what was out there there wasn't much but you know in a way it was sort of fairly obvious like you know there was sort of basics around the biology you know an introduction to you know the process of menstruation but what we also understood was that the way it was so there was a kind of emerging sector called you know in the water and sanitation and health sector which was looking at menstrual hygiene management so the idea being that you know we have to educate girls about, you know, that you get these periods, that you're going to have to maintain a certain level of hygiene, washing, personal hygiene, and especially about pads. You know, Mm. the whole focus of education was pads. (laughs) That was the centrepiece of it. And we're like, oh, is that it? So like it just felt like there was such an immense opportunity to go so far beyond that. Mm -hmm. And so we just started playing around with ideas and experimenting in some of the local schools and Essentially, what we felt was that the, that the missed opportunity felt to be connected to really unfolding this idea of, first of all, in a way, examining the worldview around menstruation. Like, mm-hmm. does it have to be such a sort of, you know, just a thing to be managed and concealed mm-hmm. and, you know, dealt with and sort of as quickly and as neatly and unmessily as possible? Mm-hmm. Like, what is the worldview this whole thing's embedded in? And, you know, through our own explorations and journey, I think, and the conversations we were having in the team, we just perceived a much richer potential to go deeper and to, you know, first of all, position menstruation in a much wider context of that it's it's a way in which we can start to examine and reflect on embeddedness within the larger cycles of life. And Mm. could that be contextualized in a way that evokes more curiosity Mm. and more mystery Mm. and intimacy rather than, you know, just clean it up girl and get it out of everybody's sight you know, yeah, as quickly yeah, as possible. Sure, yeah. and this was obviously things that we'd been seeing emerging in the west but hadn't seen any real integration of these ideas in india so mm-hmm. far so we tried things out and i think we gradually built a curriculum that first of all i think another idea that was really important is the understanding that 
anybody who's trying to teach menstrual education, like if they're all bound up in their own negative biases around mm-hmm. menstruation, that is also what they're going to convey. Mm-hmm. So we felt that it was really important that a facilitator also does their own inner work mm-hmm. to really unpack their own conditioning and um, negative biases, which we've all absorbed through our culture mm-hmm. around menstruation, greater or lesser extent, sure. but somewhere it's all there and yeah. air we breathe. So first of all, to really look at those questions, which we did through, you know, even inquiring into your first experience mm-hmm. and how's your relationship now and who were you, do you talk to people about it or do you feel shy to, who do you talk to, who don't you talk to, why not? So to really sort of help facilitators of this work to go deep and understand it for themselves where their what their relationship is to their own menstrual experience mm. so that's sort of one part of it is just preparedness as a facilitators because mm. you know I think it's pretty fair to say that you know what a lot of what you transmit in this kind of work is not even content it's just what you hold as mm. a facilitator yeah. your own sort of posturing and your openness and curiosity and space so you know we brought these ideas into our training both in training trainers but also how we offered these sessions mm. and yeah there was a few things that we started to really explore mm. so yeah, unpacking the biases. Yeah, also this idea that, you know, the, that, that as facilitators, I think part of the model here in India too is, you know, that there's an expert. Like I know in the beginning a lot of people would say, shouldn't we call in a doctor or a nurse to do this kind of education? You know, doesn't it need an expert? And we're like... No, 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 because actually anybody who's in a way in a menstruating body has embodied knowledge. There is lived experience. Now, it doesn't necessarily qualify you as somebody that can, you know, do a training, but essentially what we really felt important is that we've all got this lived experience inside, and especially in a country that's so large like India with, you know, there's about, I think, something like... 350 million you know girls and women of reproductive age it's like these numbers are phenomenal and if you know everyone's going to have to go through a menstrual education session like what would it look like to Mm. also empower girls and women to themselves feel that they can pass this knowledge Mm. on and start these conversations and you know there's some basic information how to be healthy how to look after yourself you know what sort of routine around pad changing and stuff so these were the basics that anyone could convey but there was also a deeper opportunity so we've tried through our educational work to encourage you know girls and women to find their own voice to convey their experience and their learning so if we're teaching a group it's like part of it what we do at the very end is also get them to take a pledge and say I'm going to pass on what I've learned and to really demystify it from expert knowledge to it starts with a conversation And what's your experience? You're struggling, you know, if there is pain, you know, share the sorts of, you know, maybe asanas or remedies that, you know, or how you've alleviated pain, mm-hmm. get conversations happening. Another thing that we've done is, you know, first of all, just also orientation in the body, like what's actually going on in our body. And instead of making it all about biology and abstract charts, Mm -hmm. it's like, let's feel this this source. Where is our womb and our Mm -hmm. our yoni? And, and, you know, when we get girls to, for example, put their hand there, make a triangle where it is, feel it, feel the size, and to say words like yoni out loud, you Mm -hmm. know, and really, and this is is also something where they're like, oh, you know, really kind of bound in the beginning, but then their voice loosens up and then role plays like imagine your younger sister comes to you and says I've found blood in my panties 
you know, how can you advise her and then coaching them through conveying this, the knowledge and also the reassurance mm-hmm. and the, the positive orientation around, you know, it might be also difficult sometimes mm-hmm. having periods, but it's an interesting phenomenon and it connects us to a deeper experience, which is really also to do with our embeddedness in the larger cycles yeah. of life. What Cathy and the EcoFem team are doing is way more than teaching girls how to manage their periods. They're breaking taboos, sparking connections, enabling dialogues, and nurturing a new layer of camaraderie between sisters and mothers and daughters and communities of girls and women. The more I got to think about this, the more I started to realize how little dialogue there is about this very essentially female experience this cornerstone of womanhood. And yes, not all women menstruate, and that is life. Yet, it is the experience of the vast majority of us, and we just don't have these incredibly powerful conversations. I think another piece that we've seen to be really quite transformational Mm. and opening is the whole way in which we're addressing the cycle, the cyclical Mm. phenomenon of menstruation as well. And again, I think often in more mainstream menstrual education, there's a focus, this emphasis is on the overt phase of bleeding, you know, Mm. (laughs) but actually it's embedded in the cycle. Mm. And, you know, we go through all these different shifts and changes, Mm. but, you know, we're not taught to, for example, pay attention to these more subtle changes that are happening maybe emotionally and you know we're all maybe familiar with terms like PMS and you know the kind of dreaded (laughs) PMS phase but actually when we start to look at menstruation as part of a larger cyclical phenomenon and so to really we train we, we also guide them how to track and trace and and document their own cycle this can be as simple as even the literate women can do it it's like when you draw for example this reference to the moon and say what cycles are you aware of so then they start to reflect and and gradually you build this picture you know that all of nature is cyclical Mm. you know whether it's a lunar cycle solar cycle or planting cycles um, you know we're embedded in in cycles and hey we've got this thing going on in our bodies which is also cyclical Let's ponder that. Let's wonder about that, you know. And then then what about your cycle? So it's a bit like going from this meta-cyclical perspective mm. to what about your cycle? What's your unique cycle? Starts on this day and then teaching them just the basics of track it and do this for a few months. And, you can, of course, you can go way down that rabbit hole and, and go deeply into really documenting, you know, day-by-day changes. Mm. But at a minimum, notice how am I connecting with this moon cycle? Maybe I can remember that the full moon happened like three days before I started bleeding, for example. Mm. But there's this a connection that a woman, you know, in a village can just look up at the moon and go, oh, that somehow we are connected. Mm. And that can be absolutely profound. Like I've been really struck by how deep this knowledge can go, this Mm. awareness, and suddenly this thing which they've thought about as sort of a bit, you know, of a mess to be kind of cleaned up and concealed and, and out of sight, out of mind. It's like suddenly this doorway opens where it's like they're embedded in this larger cycles of Mm. nature. And you can almost feel the mind being blown, Mm. you know, just Mm. by contemplating this. And we're not sort of trying to talk them into adopting this particular ideology around it and you should feel any particular way. It's No, it's really just about feel what is your experience, your lived experience. Notice it ebbs and flows, tidal changes, you know, this Mm. is life. And in living in cyclical bodies, we are part of this natural world. And 
something happens mm. when we connect with that. And I, you know, that's been my own lived mm. experience too. Like mm. it transforms something and one becomes more of a felt sense of rather than, you know, like a problem to be solved or, you know, something to be ignored. It becomes this doorway into great mystery that mm. we are participating in. Mm. And, it's, it just becomes an inquiry that goes on and on and on, you know, yeah, yeah. cycle after cycle. While I was in India, I got to talk to a lot of women as I was curious about their experience as well as being interested in the broader Indian culture. One of the aspects of womanhood that kept coming up was the erasure of individual identity. Women get married very young in most of India. And even before they get married, they are mostly groomed to be wives and mothers and homemakers, deeply entrenched in the traditional gender roles. When they do get married, they become mostly outwardly focused. They lose their identity as they merge into the family identity. Their priorities are almost always their husbands, their children, their homes, the reputation of the family, and so on. They almost abandon themselves. What I found so profound about Ecofem's approach is how they framed menstruation as an anchor to the individual self, a reminder throughout the month of our uniqueness, our individual experience, something these women can come back to and find themselves to take a moment to just be. Not a wife, not a mom, but a human, in a body separated, yet so deeply connected to the essence of nature and life. It's almost a type of meditation. And because Ecofem gets to do this work in schools with young girls, they get to plant the seed of the individual identity in each girl. The seed of the self gets watered and nurtured month after month, connecting women to themselves and to each other, causing gentle, radical social change. I have been so personally moved by this conversation, more than I could have imagined. Frankly, I'm still trying to understand why. I think maybe I hadn't realized how negatively of a relationship I had developed with my period and my body in this one aspect. The best way I can describe it is as if I have been unconsciously caring for this wound by simply putting layers and layers of gauze over it forever. And as this conversation unfolded, I got to peel these bloody layers of gauze and expose the wound to fresh air and care for it with this new understanding. As I did, the wound not only healed, but became a portal of connection to myself, to something bigger than myself. As I was having these profound shifts, two things were coming up for me. I was curious about what kind of reaction Ecofam got in the field. And I was starting to realize this is not only a rural India problem. And, you know, again, not everyone takes it on in this with the same sort of enthusiasm, <laughs> but many do, you know, many do because we evaluate and we go back and we just try to learn through doing this because it all has been trial and error, mm. you know. We haven't really had a, you know, roadmap to follow in mm. this work, so we've just experimented and we've observed what sort of, you know, reception response mm. there is to these approaches and we're seeing you know, that these um, are having deep impact, this yeah. kind of reflection, meditation, yeah. as you put it. 
So, you know, and then we check sometimes we go back to communities after a few months and it's been beautiful to see many of them continue this practice. And it's it's like something has shifted really profoundly. Of course, there are some that are, you know, maybe like it's, it's a long way from what they've maybe been kind of conditioned with. So it's, you know, it's a bit of a leap to sort of take some of these ideas on. But for the most part, I find the reception to these ideas is, is quite organic. It's almost as if there's something inside of most of us that resonate deeply and we're just waiting for permission for someone to say, Mm. It is like that. You're not making it up, you know, and that you go through these sort of ebbs and flows. Mm. Actually, also, I think what's super validating for a lot of them is because, and I had it myself, I used to it was something wrong because I used to feel like I'd be going kind of mad every <laughs> month, you know, premenstrually. And the more I entered into this worldview, the more I found it was kind of deeply validating and kind of, it was like, oh, maybe there's, it's not me that's the problem. Maybe there's something in our culture that ex- expects this relentless productivity and, we're, and consistency and, you know, and there's a whole doorway into the whole patriarchal culture and the things that you were mentioning too, that we're expected to be on and for our family and for everybody else but you know we're not given permission to take our attention inside our own lived embodied experience so I think for the most part the response is like we've just been sort of almost waiting for someone to say it's okay to give this attention and they Mm. see this menstrual experience can be a doorway Mm. Yeah, and I, one more piece that's, you know, in terms of range of responses, what's been actually really interesting in India too is, like, we work in all kinds of communities. Our work spans, you know, because our commercial pads are sold, you know, to affluent women in, in cities and also, in you know, we do our work in rural communities with tribal communities, you know, sometimes with quite communities where they're not even literate. Mm. And yet these are the communities where they get it. Like there's an instinctive sense of like, you don't have to in a way explain it to them mm. because they are connected with the earth. They're not the ones that have been disassociated and disconnected. Sure. It's the women in the cities that are like, kind of, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and similarly with the cloth pads, um, the product that we make, it's, you know, they're very receptive to the cloth pads. They're mostly, st- well, actually it's changing in recent mm. years, but cloth is still very familiar as a product mm. for men menstruation and so cloth pads is just a, you know an extension of that practice but with the functionality of leak proofing and wings so mm-hmm. you know they're like yeah they're very very much appreciating the cloth pad we have much harder time working with more educated mm-hmm. urban women who have more this idea of Ooh, isn't that disgusting and mm-hmm. this aversion to menstrual blood and the idea of washing it can be a real barrier um, mm-hmm. yeah and also like oh we're too busy to do things like that <laughs> you know like that's where we get much more pushback than in the As a longtime New Yorker, now living in relatively rural conditions at a citrus grove by the Mediterranean Sea, I could really relate to what Kathy was saying. There would be weeks when I didn't get to see the moon in New York. And now, scarlet sunsets, all the phases of the moon, the nature changing around me throughout the seasons, the tides are a part of my life. And this has changed the way I see things. Interestingly, I too had shifted from disposable products to cloth pads when I left the city. And I wanted to know more about Ecofem products, as well as how they structured their commercial side. 
So the cloth pad product is, yeah, it's so we're a social enterprise. So we have a commercial and non-commercial side to what we do. Mm. And on the commercial, it is the manufacturing sales marketing of cloth pads. Mm. And the cloth pad, just if anyone doesn't know, is just a reusable, washable menstrual pad that mm. has wings that sort of button underneath your panties. It's got a leak-proof layer. Mm. Otherwise, it's multiple layers of cotton that's made with organic certified cotton. So on the commercial side, we actually we're selling the pads in India, but also all around the world. We're in 20 countries at the moment. Mostly we work through retailers. And the commercial sales are the channel through which we can, and especially our international sales. So every international customer is a donor. When they purchase a pad, they sponsor and they pay for an additional pad that's built into the cost, which we then can provide um, as part of our menstrual health education programs to adolescent girls. Mm-hmm. As we call that program pad for pad. Mm-hmm. So yeah, commercial is pretty straightforward. Marketing sales, cloth pads, mm-hmm. and we've got a whole range of different, they're different sizes, different. Mm-hmm. We've got natural range, a coloured range, and um, and it's a really you know beautiful, chemical free, high quality product mm-hmm. that yeah. is lasts for maybe four or five years. Then on the non-commercial side, which we've been talking largely about, is where we focus our education work. And there I'd say the pad becomes more like it's more like the Trojan horse mm-hmm. that enables us to gives us sort of the financial means largely to mm-hmm. do what we do on the non-profit side. And there we have the two programs. So Pad for Pad focuses on adolescent girls. Mm-hmm. We largely work in government schools because they're the most disadvantaged um, economically. And we work a lot with partners around the country. So we train partners to deliver the kind of education approach that I've spoken about. Mm. And then, so I just mentioned in the other program, Pads for Sisters, that target group is women. Mm. So they actually contribute but a nominal amount for their pads. So if they want pads, they will pay just a subsidised rate, which is affordable for them because the commercial price is too high Mm. for them. Um, but the emphasis for all of our nonprofit work is more on the side of education. Mm-hmm. And another piece that we're really very kind of serious about is informed choice. Like we really don't ever want to push product on anybody. Um, this is sort of one of my main critiques of a lot of, you know, companies who just mm-hmm. kind of push pads and, or push their product and saying, here, this is the best you should use it. And I truly believe that there, there is no such thing as a best menstrual product. I think it's highly contextual. It's mm-hmm. got to be able to suit you know the kind of in terms of cultural acceptance you know availability and access to water so we really try to give um, women and girls who we do sessions with all the information and exposure to the different menstrual options that are out there so that they can make an informed choice and I think that's super important because underpinning that value is the idea that we when given correct information we can make wise choices for ourselves Mm. we don't need to you know tell people what to do So we spend, you know, usually a good hour in most of our sessions really showing all the different options, talking about them, how they're used, what they cost, what the advantages and exploring these advantages Mm. and disadvantages. Mm. And, you know, at the end of the day, we do see that many are happy to use a cloth pad because they've understood and And especially I think what really lands a deep impact is the recognition of, say, a disposable pad it's the most common product mm. used here in India, more so like tampons are not at all common. Mm. Um, even cloth is becoming more rare. So these disposable pads have really become the mainstream product. Mm. 
and they're full of plastics and they're full of chemicals. Mm. And we know now that a single pad will probably take somewhere between 500 to 800 years to break down Mm. into microplastics. So this sort of information, obviously, they're not being told that, Mm. especially by advertisers. Sure. (laughs) We are led to believe that the disposable sanitary products are the epitome of hygiene, designed to make menstruation effortless. In reality, They're full of plastics and chemicals such as bleach and acetone. That's nail polish remover. So are tampons. The vulva is made up of mucous membrane, which means she absorbs everything directly into the bloodstream. We are absorbing all these chemicals every month. I think part of our main issue and concern is also the environment. I mean, when we're talking about our embeddedness in nature, obviously doing things that are trashing the earth are in complete contradiction of that that ethic and that value and and feeling, I think, of connections. So we hope through our work that we convey some of those, once you feel that you belong to nature, it's not that you use a cloth pad because someone's, you know, hammered you into thinking that you have to do the right thing morally for the earth or whatever, Mm. but that, you know, it's like when you get that you are part of the earth you the next logical step is you're not going to do something that's going to harm it and so when you realize these pads sit around for so long it's much more of a natural choice to choose something like this or a menstrual cup or more and more you know period panties are another sustainable option so yeah we're really seeing that through our education work and, you know, also our, in a way our activism around this topic, mm. that this topic of sustainable menstruation is really gaining a lot of traction mm. in India. Full disclosure, I do use Ecofem pads now. They are the best I have found in the market. If you are looking to make a shift, I thoroughly recommend you check them out. We'll put the links in the show notes and in the new episode drop emails that you get in your inbox. And by the way, if you're not getting those... You are missing out. So after you're done with this episode, why don't you jump onto our website, wearecuriousfoxes.com, and sign up. One more thing about disposable menstrual products. With the type of advertising the manufacturers are putting out there, we are constantly getting the message that menstrual blood is dirty with the dumb blue liquid they use to illustrate the flow. And we are encouraged to be chirpy and active during our periods despite what our bodies are saying. No, I don't want to wear skinny white pants and go for a run on my period. I want to be in comfy sweats and meditate. That's my nature. Kathy and I spoke for the best part of two hours, and it was one of the most unexpectedly transformative conversations I've ever had. When I arrived at our beautifully airy home surrounded by lush greenery in Oroville, India, I was expecting to talk about how periods sucked how we should all use your reusable path to save the planet, and what an incredibly inspiring social enterprise Ecofem is, creating this amazing circular model that provides income for rural women in India while educating girls and women about menstruation by producing reusable sanitary pads that are environmentally responsible. What I found is an inner exploration and another path to healing the disassociation from my body and the earth through my menstrual cycle and the humble cloth pad. You can learn more about Kathy and Ecofem and purchase the products by visiting ecofem.org. Ecofem is also on Instagram at Ecofem and YouTube and Facebook as at Ecofem India. Once you had a look at them, 
jump onto our website where you'll find blog posts and past episodes that can help you indulge your curiosity around love, sex, and relationships. Wearecuriousfoxes.com If you want to weigh in on this topic and connect with other Foxy listeners, head to Facebook and join our Facebook group at We Are Curious Foxes. If you find our episode interesting and helpful, please share our podcast with a friend. Quickly rate the show and leave a comment and subscribe on Apple Podcast. Or connect with the show however it makes sense in your favorite podcast app. This will take a few seconds of your time and it will have a big impact on us. To support the show, you can join us on Patreon at We Are Curious Foxes, where you can find mini episodes and podcast extras and over 50 videos from educated-led workshops. Go on to Patreon at We Are Curious Foxes. And let us know that you're listening by sharing a comment, a story, or a question by emailing us or sending us a voice memo to listening at wearecuriousfoxes.com. This episode is produced by Effie Blue, with help from Yamur Arkishi. Our editor is Nina Pollock, who helps us stay connected to our voice every week. Our intro music is composed by Dev Saha. We are so grateful for their work, and we're grateful to you for listening. As always, stay curious, friends. Curious Fox Podcast is not and will never be the final word on any topic. We solely aim to encourage curiosity and provide a space for exploration through connection and story. We encourage you to listen with an open and curious mind and we'll look forward to your feedback. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious.